Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Welcome to our ongoing post-trial coverage of Minnesota v. Chauvin, following Chauvin being found guilty on all counts. I am attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. With the guilt phase of Chauvin's trial now completed, with verdicts of guilt on all counts, and that's second-degree felony murder, third-degree reckless murder, and second-degree reckless manslaughter, we now move on to the sentencing phase of the legal process. Incidentally, if you're enjoying this content on the day of publication, April 21st, 2021, you might be interested in the Derek Chauvin post-trial analysis webinar I'll be doing live with Professor William Jacobson at Legal Insurrection tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll each provide our own perspectives on the trial and the political dynamics surrounding the trial, as well as have live Q&A. And if that timing doesn't work or it's already passed when you learn of it, you can also catch a recording of the webinar after the fact. Either option, live or recording, requires a free registration, which you can take care of by clicking the link below. It's free, but you do need to register. Okay, folks, with that out of the way, let's jump into what to expect in terms of the sentencing of now-convict Derek Chauvin. Minnesota uses sentencing guidelines for this purpose, as do most states these days. And for those interested, I've embedded some of the guideline materials uh, below near the bottom of this post. Generally speaking, sentencing guidelines calculate a sentence range based on the severity of the crime and then adjust that range up or down, primarily based on any prior convictions of the defendant who's being sentenced. Once an initial range is determined, however, that range can be further reduced below the initial range if there are mitigating factors or alternatively increased above the initial range if there are aggravating factors. These aggravating factors are now known as Blakely factors in reference to the U.S. Supreme Court decision on sentencing enhancement, Blakely v. Washington, and I'll put a link of that decision in the text version of today's content. Now, Blakely is an interesting case uh, because it resulted in a profound revision of how sentencing guidelines are understood and applied in criminal law. So criminal offenses typically have a maximum sentence, say 40 years for second-degree felony murder, as here. And then the sentencing guidelines suggest some fraction of that maximum for a typical convict, say a convict with no prior convictions. And you might end up with a 10-and-a-half-year sentence for that same second-degree murder conviction. The traditional practice had long been that a judge could consider a variety of mitigating and aggravating factors in ordering a shorter or longer sentence, respectively, than the guidelines suggested, and that this consideration was entirely in the discretion of the sentencing judge, so long as the sentence ordered did not exceed the maximum statutory sentence for that particular offense for which the defendant had been found guilty. So in the context of our second-degree felony murder conviction, a jury of the defendant's peers had found him guilty of that crime, punishable by up to 40 years, and now it was within the discretion of the sentencing judge to start sentencing considerations using the recommended sentence suggested by the guidelines and then adjusting upward or downward based on his own discretion with no further involvement by a jury. The only time further involvement of a jury would be required then would be if the judge wished to exceed the statutory maximum sentence for the crime for which the defendant had been found guilty. In effect, the defendant would need to be convicted of some separate offense that carried a longer than 
40-year maximum in our hypothetical if the judge wanted to sentence the defendant to additional time beyond that 40-year maximum. And of course, a separate conviction on a separate offense would once again trigger the right to a jury to do the fact-finding for that second conviction. So that's how sentencing departures typically worked. A sentencing judge had no need to involve a jury in sentencing so long as the judge did not attempt to exceed the maximum statutory sentence for the crime of which the defendant had been found guilty by a jury. Blakely changed all that. Under Blakely, the judge still needed to involve a jury if he wanted to sentence beyond the maximum statutory range for the crime for which the defendant was convicted. But Blakely also held that a judge needed to involve a jury if he wanted to sentence a convict beyond the range suggested by the sentencing guideline. In effect, the limit of the sentencing judge's discretion was no longer the statutory maximum for the crime in question. Under Blakely, the limit of the sentencing judge's discretion became whatever sentence was suggested by the sentencing guideline. If the sentencing judge wanted to exceed the guideline suggestion of a sentence, under Blakely, the convict now has a right to a jury to do the fact-finding on that decision to escalate up the sentence. In the case of Minnesota v. Chauvin, the state months ago filed notice with the court that if Chauvin were found guilty, they intended to seek sentencing departure above and beyond the normal range based on a variety of aggravating factors they claim to exist, these Blakely factors. And they outlined those in a motion they filed last October 2020. And immediately after yesterday's reading of the guilty verdict, verdicts, Judge Cahill informed the parties that they would have one week from yesterday to file arguments on Blakely factors in this case, and that he would render his factual findings of aggravating factors for sentencing within the following week. And I'll get to why the judge is doing the fact finding here when in fact, under Blakely, um, Chauvin would have a right to have a jury do the fact-finding. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, separately, in terms of timing, Judge Cahill ordered a pre-trial investigation, what's called a PSI report, to be conducted, returnable in four weeks from yesterday. Arguments on the PSI findings two weeks after that. Final sentencing a further two weeks after that. So we should expect final sentencing in this case will be eight weeks from yesterday's verdict. Now, each of the charges on which Chauvin was convicted carries its own maximum sentence, uh, but again, the maximum is rarely imposed in the absence of prior conviction. So generally, the defendant without priors, um, now a convict, of course, without priors, a convict after being found guilty, can expect to be sentenced to some sizable fraction of the maximum sentence, depending on what the guidelines suggest. In the context of second-degree felony murder, the maximum sentence is 40 years in prison, and a convict without priors could expect to be sentenced to about 10 and a half years in prison. In the context of third-degree reckless murder, the second count on which Chauvin was found guilty, the maximum sentence is 25 years, and a convict without priors could expect to be sentenced to 10 and a half years again under the guidelines. In the context of the third count of which Chauvin was found guilty, second-degree reckless manslaughter, the maximum sentence is 10 years, and a convict without priors could expect to be sentenced to four years and a fine of up to $20,000. Now, normally those sentences would be ordered to run concurrently in parallel with each other, not consecutively, so that Chauvin, as a convict without priors, would expect to be sentenced to 10 and a half years in prison and be eligible for early release in some substantial fraction of that time. The state's pursuit of a Blakely upward departure in sentencing, however, means that if Judge Cahill agrees with the factual Blakely claims made by the state, 
he will be free to sentence Chauvin to substantially more time than in 10 and a half years the guidelines would otherwise suggest. The state's October motion cites several specific Blakely factors in its argument for an upward sentencing departure, and we should assume that those same factors and additional factors I'll come to in a moment will be made in the state's Blakely motion to be submitted to Judge Cahill in the coming week. The factors, the Blakely factors in the October motion include first that George Floyd was particularly vulnerable when he was killed by Chauvin. That's based on the facts that Floyd's arms were handcuffed behind his back, that Chauvin pressed him into the street, that Floyd was rendered unconscious. Uh, The second Blakely factor mentioned in the motion is that Derek Chauvin's conduct qualifies as an abuse of his position of authority because it was committed while a police officer and in full uniform at the time. While those were the only Blakely factors mentioned in the October 2020 motion, I've mentioned there are additional Blakely factors applicable to the facts of this case, and we should expect those additional factors to be argued in this week's Blakely motion by the state. These additional Blakely factors include argument that Floyd was treated with particular cruelty, that Chauvin committed his crimes as part of a group of three or more persons, and that Chauvin committed his crime in the presence of and witnessed by multiple children, meaning people under the age of 18. Now, because consideration of these Blakely factors involve making findings of fact, for example, were there actually present persons under the age of 18? Uh, the defendant has a U.S. constitutional right to have a jury determine if Blakely factors have been proven, as discussed above. Alternatively, a defendant can waive this right to a jury finding on Blakely factors and instead have the sentencing judge do the fact-finding on these factors. This is much like a defendant waiving the right to a jury trial entirely and electing to instead have a bench trial in which the judge plays the role of finder of fact in place of the jury playing that role. Now, in this case, prior to the verdicts being announced, Chauvin had already informed the court that he chose to waive his right to jury fact-finding on Blakely factors and would defer to the court to do the fact-finding on Blakely. This was probably prudent. The Blakely factors only are relevant if the jury has already returned a guilty verdict, and a jury that has just returned a guilty verdict seems unlikely to be favorably disposed in the next moment to being lenient on Blakely factors. Now, had this Blakely fact-finding been left to the jury, however, the jury would have been provided with an additional fact-finding form in addition to the jury verdict forms for they already had for each of the criminal accounts, and on which this Blakely fact-finding form, various factual claims of Blakely factors are listed, and the jury is asked to check off to indicate if each Blakely claim has been proven. So in anticipation of this possibility that Chauvin would demand jury fact-finding on Blakely factors, the prosecution had prepared just such a fact-finding form for the jury. Uh, This form was ultimately not needed because Chauvin waived his right to a jury fact-finding on Blakely factors, uh, but it was prepared, so I've included it in the text version of today's content. So as promised, In today's content, we have embedded the October 2020 motion on Blakely factors filed by the state. Uh, We have the jury fact-finding form on Blakely factors prepared but never actually used. And I've also embedded in the text version of today's content the current Minnesota sentencing guidelines as a PDF document, as well as 
the current Minnesota sentencing guidelines grid that provides kind of a graphical view of how the guidelines are intended to be applied in this case. And as always, anyone interested in a free podcast version of this kind of legal commentary and analysis uh, can access that at the free Law of Self-Defense News and Q&A podcast. It's available on most every podcast platform, Pandora, iHeart, Spotify, Apple, Google. You can just get an RSS feed for your favorite podcast player, and you can learn more about how to access that podcast at lawofselfdefense.com slash free podcast. And thanks as always to both Legal Insurrection and CCWSA for the support that makes my coverage of this case possible. All right, folks, until next time, probably until this evening, when we do the post-trial analysis webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern time, see the link for that above. I remain attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe. 